I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you, everybody, for listening, particularly because this is going to be a quick and dirty... <laughs> this is going to be a quick and dirty episode with limited and probably rough editing. And no music, because I'm a fucking idiot and left my computer in North Carolina. So I will have a much better produced and better conceived and edited episode for you next week and uh and that other the other half of that ama coming out on the secret show very soon but i wanted to record a little something for you from my unfamiliar device and unfamiliar editing equipment here this afternoon i did i had a couple things i wanted to talk about um so shane sent me a poem by ben lerner it's one i had not seen before uh and he in, in typical shane fashion uh, noted that <laughs> that uh, that despite all of my bad mouthing, he likes Ben Lerner's poetry, and uh, and and I'm not surprised. I mean, Ben Lerner is whatever else you want to say about him. He is a smart guy, and he is a very capable writer. I I have questions and qualms about some of his goals as a writer, but he is certainly a smart guy. And this poem which was a little bit surprising to me. It was not really, I mean, it was not really what I expected, I guess, from a Ben Lerner poem. It's called Meridian Response, and it was in the New York Review of Books, I think. I, I have a PDF in front of me, so I'm not totally sure, but yeah, I believe this is the New York Review of Books. It looks like their typical format. So it's called Meridian Response. It was in the July 21st, 2022 issue. I'll read it for you quickly here. I think if I were for reasons that should become clear fairly soon. If I were to read the ideal reading experience for this would be a, a smoky voiced 19 year old girl whispering the poem from beginning to end, but I can't quite offer you that. So I will do my best. This is Meridian Response by Ben Lerner. <clears throat> the nearly audible click of snow on snow click of eye contact, tingling in the scalp that moves slowly down the neck, sound heated until it changes state, tense liquid in the mouth, cadence falling on and on, the breath colliding with the pain, inaudible click of the tongue against the alveolar ridge, sunlight falling around a helpless thing. This is a recording of rain stopping, power being cut, Room tone you take outside, release into the trees, silver leaves shifting in the dark, the almost sound when deer look up, small roots dangling from their mouths, scattering earth, ashes, light, scattering the sound of opening the throat as if to speak. I want to make that sound of setting something down on paper as opposed to under glass. Ghostly opposition. Vowel of stone fruit softening. Whisper of internal inflammation. Want to praise the low-grade euphoria produced by making fine distinctions. Click of tiny differences. Bow drawn across a metal plate covered with a fine layer of sand. A nodal pattern. Feeling forms around the static. Crinkling paper. Thin plastics. Nymphs hatching in grasses. Feeding on grasses. The paper curls up in flame, attracting mates. When a near rhyme is lost to slow changes in pronunciation, 
a call goes out for work to reconstruct it. Love and move, alterations in the mouth, play of colors, friends conduct experiments in hearing as, distortion as music, ocean as traffic, wind in the trees like overheard speech, the not yet audible sound of me clinging to belief in new senses, making the softest possible claim, brushing it against the grain, taking on a negative charge so changes might be rung without waking anybody up, sound of pins and needles, rustle of, of. So the poem might be more confusing if you don't recognize what the title is referring to, which is, I mean, it is possible I totally missed this, but I think I actually have, uh, I think this is the rare experience which I have the key to a Ben Lerner poem, and I believe this key is ASMR. Meridian response is the back half of that initialism, autonomous sensory meridian response, which is, to the best of my understanding, just pseudoscientific gobbledygook. It's just a, a sort of a made-up phrase that people who like to talk about ASMR used in order to give it some sort of uh, a feeling of authority. A, 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 um, uh, a, a realness, a, uh, a legitimacy, a polysyllabic uh, uh, fibrousness that, uh, that will make strangers take it seriously. Because ASMR, whatever else you want to call it, is real. It is a thing that happens. It is a funny, tingly feeling people get. My daughter, the other day, when I was, uh, I had her at home solo for a couple of weeks while my wife was at Suwannee, and I was, uh, was rubbing her neck, and she said, only mommy can make my head warm when she rubs my neck. And she's referring there to ASMR. She's referring to this funny experience that people have that I had in libraries as a kid, listening to the librarian crinkle the mylar of a library book cover and, you know, softly read out the words that I wasn't even listening to because all I cared about was the sound of her voice. I used to get it in Baltimore going to the uh, the tailor to, to, you know, to, to have minor repairs made to clothes or shoes. And this ancient woman spoke in a very soft voice and, and rustled the carbon copies of the pickup slip when she, she filled it out in pencil. And that gave me the feeling. My wife has had the feeling at other times. It is this funny, curious uh, experience that if you have not experienced it, then you almost certainly believe that it's bullshit. Sort of like misophonia, which I also experienced. Misophonia being another sort of dumb, sort of made up word that it's, it's intended to give legitimacy to a real but elusive experience. In this case, misophonia being the nearly physical pain that some people experience in response to certain sounds. I do in response to the sound of people eating. So uh, I think, you know, I was interested to see Ben Lerner pick this up because it did remind me of, I think a few years ago, I read an article about vocal fry and it talked about the use of lol or lol and like, and it kind of made the observation that often it's teenage girls in America, at least, who are at the cutting edge of slang and of sort of verbal and oral uh, innovation and that these innovations tend to be seen as silly and laughable and fake and childish 
until the exact same innovations are picked up, you know, often a decade or so later by respectable intellectual, uh, uh, you know, male uh, uh, pundits and uh, commentators. So, you know, this may be what's happening with Ben Lerner here. The whole poem is almost like a script for an ASMR episode. It's full of sibilance and uh, gentle plosives and even the language of the poem itself, the, the talk about what's inaudible and what's barely audible and the description of these, uh, you know, snow and, and uh, you know, grasses shifting and uh, um, what else does he have in there? Uh, the sound of opening the throat as if to speak. I want to make that sound of setting something down on paper as opposed to under glass. I mean, these are these are almost like the descriptions that you get in the comments on, in the in the you know the notes the show notes on ASMR videos. This is a uh, you know pencil sounds, typing sounds, throat opening sounds, soft mouth sound, ear to ear breathing. You know this kind of stuff. Got low grade euphoria. Again, I mean, this is almost all just out of a Wikipedia article on ASMR. And, you know, I think probably if somebody with a more pleasant, whispery voice than I were to read it, it might very well produce that uh, effect. I don't have strong feelings about this as a poem. I mean, I tend to think that Lerner just has disappointingly low ambitions as a poet. He seems to be content to dick around with language rather than actually to try to create any kind of unity. But what this particular poem and its its reference to ASMR brought home to me was maybe an explanation for something I've had trouble with lately, which is accounting for the pleasure some people have in poems that I don't really get. And I, you know, I have a really good conversation with Cameron that I was supposed to release today and I will release next week. Uh, and I'm going to be recording uh, another conversation with Alice and Cameron tomorrow night about difficulty more broadly in poetry. But I think there, you know, I, I always allow for the possibility that, that other readers are simply smarter than I am and are keyed into a, a larger scheme that I don't, I just don't have access to or don't have patience for. So that I think is totally possible and is definitely the case in with some poems, with some difficult poems or books or types of poetry that I struggle with. But I think something else may also be happening here. And it, it, it takes me back to a few months ago when we, my daughter and I were taking our dog Echo to the first of several probably almost certainly ultimately failed training sessions for her. Uh, we we were trying to get her to, to comply with the exercise at hand using these little dry pieces of dog kibble. And she was not having it. She was totally uninterested. The trainer came over and, uh, and, and observed us for a moment. And we said, well, I don't, I don't, you know, she doesn't seem interested in the treat. She doesn't seem to want to do what we're asking her to do. She's just distracted by... The, the, the rug that she's chewing on and the smell of the other dogs frolicking around her. And the trainer looked, uh, looked, <laughs> looked me in the eye and said, y'all need to use something stinkier. And she reached into her pocket and pulled out a kind of crumbly, soft cheese paste and Echo sat right up and instantly paid attention and very quickly complied with her commands. And this sort of clarified for me something about dog treats, which is that 
uh, you know, dogs, almost all dog training is just sheer straight ahead bribery. But maybe the most important quality in a dog treat is stinkiness. And it, 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 it certainly helps if it's meat or cheese or something, you know, full of protein, but it almost doesn't matter. And you certainly see this walking a dog down the street, the way it will stop, you know, screech on the brakes and wheel around at the scent of another dog's shit, you know, which presumably doesn't have the same appetizing quality as cheese or sausage, but, but is a very rich, dense, stinky scent. And I, you know, I don't, I really don't mean to use this analogy in any kind of dismissive way. Because I think, you know, one of the big distinctions between dogs and humans is that dogs, you know, devote not just more of their, their, you know, sensory machinery to smell, but they also devote more of their brain to smell. You know, by the cubic inch, the portion of the human brain that processes vision burns more calories than any other part of the human body. We are vision processing machines. And obviously in some cases that, uh, you know, that processing power can get redistributed or, or you know, directed into other arenas. But that's sort of the, the default mode of the human brain. And I think for dogs, there's a similar kind of uh, dedication of resources to the, the analysis of smell. And, you know, I, I thought about this watching, uh, we were watching The Wire with my dog in the room and there was some big violent gun fight and she got really upset because she heard scary sounds and there were scary people doing scary things on the screen. And to her, all she really needs to know about that is, holy shit, this is scary. I'm getting the fuck out of here. I don't want that. I don't like this. Right? If you are a dog and you see something scary, you know, your eyes aren't all that good to begin with, but you see something scary and you don't need to determine whether it's real or not. You don't need to determine how well composed it is or whether it's consistent with character or story. You just need to know, I want to get the fuck out of here. And I think humans have a similar response to smell, right? We are able to look at sight or you know, listen to words, respond to certain kinds of sensory compositions in a pretty subtle way, where something that might be purely upsetting to an animal or to a child could be really worth study and not even necessarily repellent, but sort of darkly fascinating, like a Francis Bacon painting to an adult. Similarly with a dog, you know, if I smell dog shit, all I really need to know is, Ugh, no thanks, I want to stay away from that. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to get near it. Definitely don't want to, you know, get closer to smell it more. But for a dog, you know, it's not that the dog smells the shittiness less. It actually understands it more. And so that boldness, that richness of smell, that abundance of stink makes it more interesting and more worth considering. So I, I think that, I want to make sure my computer did not just turn off. Okay, <laughs> seems still to be recording. But I think that, that in an odd way, stinkiness may be a factor I had not given I'm not given sufficient consideration to in thinking about difficult poetry. That is, you know, when I listen to an ASMR video, I, you know, sometimes there's a kind of a story or there's a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, but mostly I just care about the texture. There's something about the richness of that sound that pleases me. 
Similarly, if I'm listening to someone eating, I, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what he's eating. It doesn't necessarily matter, you know, how long it lasts, except that that's just more of the sound. I mean, there's not really any arc or narrative or unity involved. There's just this strong, unpleasant sound, right? It's, it's not so much the, the, the shape of it or the content. It's the stinkiness. It's just the texture of it. And I think with, with a certain kind of poetry, especially poetry that involves, you know, uh, uh, Cameron's mad prisms of language, involves uh, dynamic, inventive uses of language, I think that there may be a question of stinkiness. It may not be so much, or it may not exclusively be a matter of being able to kind of comprehend the whole or pull together a total shape and direction and motion and story. It may be more about savoring the texture, really, really huffing in that stink and enjoying it for what it is. And maybe I just don't respond sufficiently to that. I certainly do respond to it in other cases, but not in the case of sort of sheer linguistic play. So that has been on my mind. And I, and I am, you know, uh, I, I do plan to dig into this a little bit more with Alice and Cameron tomorrow night. Uh, that's going to be definitely an, an, an Alice. I'm going to have a couple of Alice, Alice uh, Helms the Boat uh uh, shows coming up, partly because she's going to be doing the recording for us tomorrow, and partly because, uh, boy, it's nice to let somebody else take over and be in charge. And she is a very, uh, she's a very beneficent boss uh, at these things. So I do quickly, uh, it's going to be a very short episode today, but I do quickly want to um, uh, address a little bit of stupid poetry news, because boy, it's been a pretty good week or month or whatever little stretch it's been. For, for stupid poetry news. I apologize because again, this fucking computer scrolls in the opposite direction that I'm used to, so I'm, uh, I'm I keep going going backwards. But I noticed that there were there were several articles about poetry I encountered recently that all seemed to make a similar sort of weird sleight of they they all committed a similar sleight of hand. They all did a funny little trick in talking about poetry that just started to chafe me like crazy. Alice had a recent episode, I think her most, her, should still be her, her most recent episode, uh, about peak poetry and about our being in a moment where, as she puts it, poetry is especially loud. People are responding to it. People are buying it. They are sharing it, retweeting it, uh, writing articles about it. And and she talks a little bit about how how what exactly it is that they're talking about, what the, you know, to what extent this poetry is poetry. That may be a, a bit of an open question, but I think she's right to a point. But I also think that there is this funny way we use poetry now. We talk about poetry now that ends up having almost nothing to do with the poetry itself. So this is an article that I found on NPR. I think it's actually a at least partially a transcript of an NPR episode which may account for some of the extra dumb verbiage. <laughs> this is with Dear Poetry Podcast, journalist finds reprieve from burnout, which like, just to start with, like that's the title of your fucking article? Like, like we're, not, we're not even talking about what Dear Poetry is as a podcast. We're talking about the experience, the internal therapeutic experience of the podcaster. Like, oh, I'm glad that she found reprieve from her burnout with this podcast that she put out for other people to listen to. <laughs> is this fucking news? This is July 9th, 2022. 
2022. This is Miles Parks speaking to Louisa Beck, a reporter in Berlin, about her new podcast, Dear Poetry. <laughs> and finally, today, you know we love poetry. Super unpromising beginning. And a new podcast says it might even be able to fix your problems. The Dear Poetry podcast is like a poetry advice column where listeners call in and share something that's troubling them. Then a guest poet or author finds a poem that connects with the listener's situation. <laughs> One caller expressed his worries for humanity and author Cheryl Strayed responded with Good Bones by Maggie Smith, which like, I mean, that's like one degree above an author calling with worries about his self-esteem and author Cheryl Strayed responding with Invictus. I mean, by William Harry Henley, whatever his name is. I mean, this, we're not digging real deep, uh, first of all. But this is the whole premise of this podcast. And I'm not going to read this whole article, but the whole premise of it seems to be that it's good that we have poetry because it can offer advice. That it's basically it's a it's an advice column format, and readers write in with or listeners write or write in or, or call in with their problems. And Louisa Beck, this reporter, responds by giving them poetry as the advice, as the as the prescription. I actually got the idea, this is Beck talking, I actually got the idea from this book that I got as a teenager from my East German godfather. He loved poetry, and it's called Eric Kastner's Lyrical Apothecary. And it was written in the 1930s, and Eric Kastner was a dissident and satirist and poet. And he wrote this book and sorted poems by ailments. So the table of contents reads something like, you know, if aging is putting you in a bad mood, turn to pages 21, 56, and 60. And so it goes on and on. I mean, I guess at least there it's just sort of, we're talking about consolation. But it just seems like such a, such a flat and limited application of poetry. I mean, it, it's, I guess this is feel-good poetry. This is, this is poetry as... Uh, reassurance. She also, I mean, I have to say, like the poems that they quote in this article, this one, uh, Angier, North Carolina by Eric Tran, and Here by Grace Paley, and what's the other one? Oh, that's, that's it. That's, oh, they mention Roske's Beholding, or the book Beholding, but they don't actually quote from it. And they're fucking terrible. I mean, they're just the dumbest, prosiest, laziest sort of uh, talky uh, self-affirmations. I mean, it, it's it's very much like low-grade uh, Ada Limon B-sides. Uh, and, and, and Louisa Beck doesn't seem to have anything to offer about it. What is, he has this weird moment where he asks her another question that I found <laughs> sort of embarrassing. Oh yeah, here. I want to selfishly ask for another recommendation specifically for me. I'm curious about, I'm getting married in September of this year, and I have been thinking a lot about just what makes, you know, a long-lasting, healthy, happy relationship. And I'm curious on, I'm curious on if you have any poems for that specific set of circumstances. So marriage advice? How, how to have a long-lasting, healthy, happy relationship? And you're turning to poets for an answer? Do you know, have you heard of poets? I'm trying to keep, you know, your relationship, you know, working and positive and you know that's, oh yeah, so she's just mumbling the way people mumble when they speak. 
Extemporaneously, as I am right now, Beck says, okay, all right, well, Miles, I have the perfect poem for you. And this is the Grace Paley poem. And I think Grace Paley's probably a lovely person. And I've heard she's written some good fiction. But this is just fucking boilerplate horseshit. I mean, this is this is nothing. This is this is just a description of her husband that I, you know, it feels like something that you would have in a uh, in an unedited memoir composed for your grandchildren that you would publish on a two staple in a two staple pamphlet and call it a day. But instead, this is fucking NPR promoting a goddamn podcast. Oh, I forgot the best disclaimer. The best part of this this whole the, the best part part of this whole. Uh, article is the disclaimer. We wanted to talk more about this concept and even get some recommendations for ourselves. And for that, we called Louisa Beck. She's the host of Dear Poetry, which is a podcast distributed by Audible. I should also note here that Audible is a subsidiary of Amazon and both provide funding for NPR. Louisa, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Fucking despicable. All right. So then this was on KQED. This is the silliest revolutionary Colon, Tongo Eisen Martin writes poetry at an occupied school by Ozel Dahlstrom Ekman on July 28th. This is a, so it seems like there's trouble in San Francisco's eighth, oh, sorry, uh, in the Oakland Unified School District, the San Francisco's eighth poet laureate is Tongo Eisen Martin, and Oakland is having trouble closing, merging, or reducing schools, and uh, some local residents occupied a school that they had slated to close and Eisen Martin, this poet, has helped to occupy it and they're setting up community activities there and doing shows and you know he has a little uh, information table and all of that sounds great. I mean, all of that sounds like people getting involved and trying to make their community better and trying to improve local uh, education and getting involved with each other. All of that sounds just lovely, including even apparently he hosts regular live poetry readings. Now, it's not at all clear from the article if these are readings for anybody else or if it's just him performing his, at least by the sample they offer, god-awful, preachy, lazy, sloppy, bullshit spoken word poetry. Not that all po po not that all spoken word is bullshit, but boy, his sure is, at least what they offered here. But then he, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with poetry. Which again is fine. It's just it's just activism and great. So what? Except that then he brings poetry into it in the dumbest way. He says here, uh, by the time you pick up the pen, it's sort of too late. Huh? Huh? <laughs> what does that mean? So much of craft begins with oh craft. All right, we're talking about craft. We're talking about how to become a poet. How to how to make your poetry better, how to build up the skills that are required to write good poetry. Great, wonderful, I can't wait to hear what this is about. So what is required? By the time you pick up the pen, it's sort of too late. So much of the craft, so much of craft begins with the life you live before you pick up the pen. Uh, huh? That mindset also informs the kind of curriculum that's being taught at Parker K-8 now. This is the, you know, they're doing like a, a, a free school. I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what free school curriculum they're in, in, uh, putting into place right now, but I, I really, I mean, I, I, I shudder to think what it could be if their understanding of skill is the life you live before you pick up the pen. I mean, I, I, what, what the fuck does that have to do with picking up the pen? 
he goes on, he says, before we even get to the classroom, we start with the energy of resistance. Again, just hot fucking air, hot air, the energy of resistance. And in that way, a poem or any type of writing takes care of itself, says Tongo Eisenmartin, eighth poet laureate of San Francisco. The fuck are you talking about? The fuck are you talking about? And it sounds like he's doing really good work for the community in San Francisco. And he is nodding at very serious existing uh, historical problems and problems with policing and violence and racism. But the poetry itself is just fucking word salad. I mean, th there's not, he's not getting at anything here. I, I gather, now they say a couple people in the article say that he is a very impressive reader. And I believe that, but I see no evidence that he's doing anything meaningful with poetry. And, and I wouldn't mind except that he is invoking poetry constantly and talking about it as if being an activist is what's required to write good poetry. Surely there are some good activist poets, but fucking, for God's sake, these things are not correlated, let alone causally related. Fuck's sake. So once again, poetry is just a vehicle for politics. Here again, oh, let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger. Yeah, finally I did. Okay, so in The Guardian, Rita Chakraborty, who in her defense, you know, runs the Keats Shelley Foundation, I think is what it's called. So she, the, she runs the Keats Shelley House in Rome and uh, is a trustee of the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. So, you know, a lot of her, a lot of her hustle is just promoting Keats and Shelley and educating people about them and educating the people specifically about their history and that's all great except that she writes a piece in the guardian about percy on his 200th anniversary on the 200th anniversary of his death and she has almost nothing to say about his poetry percy b shelley poet atheist and determined opponent of the overpowerful what would he have made of the dramatic resignation this week by boris johnson after weeks of his authority ebbing away who fucking cares? Who cares? A flight of fancy, of course, but an irresistible one for me whose working life these last days and weeks has been dominated by the disintegration of Johnson cre Johnson's credibility. Great, fine, Johnson sounds horrible. Why the fuck are we talking about this? All the weeks I've been preparing in my downtime to commemorate 200 years since the death of a titan of English poetry and a political radical. And that's really the, the headline of this piece is that Percy, well, I, mean, the, I think I read the actual headline. For him, the poetical, the po for him, the poetic was political. How Shelley stands tall as a great romantic poet. Don't talk about great romantic poetry. She refers to Ozymandias along with a couple of unremarkable poems, but almost everything she has to say about him. I and mean, I don't think she says anything about the actual value of his poetry. Almost every single thing she says to say about him, almost every single thing she has to say about him is about how he was a political radical, how he was politically on the right side of history. Like the outgoing prime minister, Shelley went to Eton, but the common ground stops there. Fucking who cares? He was a rebel at heart, distrustful of authority, enraged at abuses of power by what he saw as the unaccountable and heartless establishment. Fine, great, but what about his poetry? Perhaps his most famous poem, Ozymandias, okay, fine, what are we gonna say about it? Mocks the empty legacy of a puffed up despot. Yes, sure it does. Also, it's a brilliant broken sonnet. I mean, it's just, it, there are a lot of poems that mock despots. There are a lot of poems that are politically radical. There are a lot of poets who have unimpeachable politics and who do great things for people and they don't fucking write Ozymandias. 
Part of Shelley's allure is the people who surrounded him. Okay, fine. She talks a little bit about his his little coterie and particularly about Mary Shelley. Uh, his personal relations with women were less respectful. Shelley talks about how he was shitty to women. Yes, no doubt, certainly. And and what about his poetry? What is it exactly that you're trying to commemorate? Uh, a few weeks ago, a group of us went on a visit to the Italian resort of Lerici, where Percy and Mary had their last home in the Casamagni before his untimely death. Shelley was haunted by visions of himself, a doppelganger he saw from the balcony of the Casamagni. I wonder, is that where Ryan got his uh, Lestraneo poem from? Where the guy in Italy, I think he's in Rome. Yeah, he's in Rome. And he looks out and he sees a doppelganger in the crowd. Great poem, by the way, Lestranio by, by Ryan. Uh, really good, under, uh, underrated poem. Brian Broger actually wrote a long thing about it, and I was glad to see he gave it the attention it deserved. Anyway, uh, and in a park next to the house, we listened to the readings of his poetry by, among others, the poet laureate Simon Armitage, and imagined him there. In a few weeks' time, we will go to the non-Catholic cemetery in Rome, where Shelley and Keats were buried, to commemorate him once again. That's sort of nice. At least there's some sense of like history and place and, and real experience there. And then the last line is, Ozymandias, king of kings, left no legacy whatsoever. The opposite is true of the man who created him. Fine, great, good for Shelley, but like, why don't we fucking talk about the poems? Really, like, the, the, the occasion and the thesis of this piece was, well, do bother to remember Shelley because he had good politics. And fucking, I don't disagree, except I think maybe there's another reason to remember him. Because plenty of people have good politics who were shit poets, and he was actually a pretty good one. The most honest of these dumb poetry pieces, I think, is this one from the New York Times. This is uh, Holland Cotter writing uh, in the, I can't was this the magazine or the Times itself? Let me see. Uh, oh, it's the New York Times art and design section. At the Met, protest and poetry about water. That's the headline. At the Met, protest and poetry about water. That's my, by the way, if you can hear the piano in the back of this, my dad practicing. I was on the phone with Joanna a moment ago and she said, oh, I hear a little girl playing piano. I won't, I won't, I won't pass that one along. All right, so Holland Cotter in the New York Times writes, at the Met, protest and poetry about water. As climate change and government actions lead to water scarcity and desecration, Native American artists send an urgent message. So again, I mean, we're mostly talking about politics here. And again, politics, it seemed pretty hard to argue with. It seems like uh, there's some meaningful thing, there's a meaningful message to be sent, and there are even some good artists sending it. Uh, you may not be surprised to learn, however, that in this article entitled At the Met, Protest and Poetry About Water, there is literally no poetry. Not that there's no poetry quoted, not that there are no poems referred to. There is no poetry at all. There appears to be no poetry in this exhibit. There appears to be no poetry related to any of the work by these artists. There is no poetry. There are no poets at all. The one place where the word poet sort of appears is, uh, is in a, an adverb. Not even an adjective. An adverb. Let me find. Yeah, here we go. So, uh, in describing a video uh, of, a, of a, a performance piece, Cotter says, the video is one of 40 works that make up water memories, a poetically faceted 
pocket-sized show about the material and symbolic role of water in Native American life. Setting aside water memories and the subject matter and the video for a second, a poetically faceted? So he's not even saying that the video itself is poetic, which would be one thing, which would also be vague as shit, and God only knows what that could possibly mean to call a video poetic. But he's saying it is a, it is a faceted video, well, in what way is it faceted? How did it, in what way does it acquire these, fa does it acquire these facets or do its facets manifest themselves? Oh, they do so poetically. Fucking what in God's name could that possibly mean? Except that he wanted some kind of uh, a highfalutin word to fill out the, the rhythm of that sentence. And then he liked the, or, or the editor liked the alliteration in the title, Protest and Poetry. Literally no poetry here. I mean, again, as I said, I think this is the most honest of the articles uh, because it doesn't even pretend to have anything to do with poetry except in its brain-dead title. So that is all I have for this week. I am sorry for the, for the quality of this episode. I'm going to try to cut some of my throat clearings and fumblings, but... You know, I wanted to give you something, and I am thinking about you. Uh, Cameron said he was taking the opportunity of an off week to go re-listen to some of the, as he says, the controversials. So he, he went back to the interview with Sam Riviere and the interview with James Muyen, which he said he took a great deal of enjoyment in. I fear some of it may have been spiteful. Thank you all so much for listening. You can reach me, as always, at sleerickets.gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon next time, hopefully with a little bit of fucking theme music. Goodbye.